Welcome to the official show here on the Fish Stripes podcast channel. It's Eli Sussman here, managing editor of Fish Stripes, giving you Marlins fans uh, my own version of a Christmas present. This should be hitting your feeds uh, overnight, sliding down into your preferred podcast provider, heading into Christmas Day 2020. This is really the start of its own separate mini-series within the official show, one that's going to be scattered, I imagine, over the course of a year or two years or three years, what I'm titling Marlins Sales Survivors, focusing on the players and personnel within the Marlins organization that were here from the Jeffrey Loria ownership era and are still surviving with the franchise uh, now three-plus years after the sale of the team to Bruce Sherman and Derek Jeter's group. Because uh, there are not many of them at this point. You can count them up on a couple of hands and toes. And uh, so that's why every time that that group dwindles more and more, I'll be recording a new episode about where the surviving players stand in the hierarchy of the organization, why they've remained this long, and uh, potentially what their futures with the team are going to be if they even have viable futures with the team. Because if there's just one really consistent trend that we've seen from Jeter since taking over as Marlins CEO, it's that he does not respect in any way uh, the organization as it was built under Loria. And in every conceivable case, he's been looking for opportunities to push out the old, bring in the new, bring in his own people, both on the playing field and at significant decision-making areas to... um, to change the organization, hopefully for the better, as things stand. And this launch of this miniseries, it's been in my head now for a number of weeks, but I'm choosing to record the episode now on the heels of the news that right-hander Jose Ureña has signed with the Detroit Tigers. That was made official on Wednesday. One year, $3.25 million for Ureña. And uh, we've talked plenty about Ureña here on the show over the last number of years. He was by far the longest tenured player in the organization. He was signed out of the Dominican Republic in August of 2008. For him, that's nearly half a lifetime ago that he signed with the Marlins as an amateur free agent. After It took him a long, steady process to make it to the majors because he wasn't super highly regarded as a young prospect. But now he'd spent parts of six seasons with the Marlins at the major league level, half of those before the ownership change, and then the other half since then. Uh, Overall, parts of six seasons from 2015 to 2020, uh, over the course of which, at his very best, at his very best, you could see him as a number three starter in a rotation. And unfortunately, at his worst, these past couple years, it's been a struggle to even see any sort of role for him contributing at the major league level, especially at a time when Marlins have so much intriguing pitching depth, layers and layers of depth that seemingly have more upside and are younger than Ureña has. I've been pretty much on board with the decision to cut ties when they did. About a month ago is when they designated Ureña for assignment to create space on the 40-man roster for prospects that they wanted to protect. He went 
on after being DFA'd, he was available to every team in the league on waivers, and he went unclaimed off waivers. And the contract that he received from the Tigers justifies that decision that the Marlins made. He was projected by MLB trade rumors to be in line for about a $4 million salary in 2021 if they had decided to keep him via the arbitration process. And ultimately, even though there was a lot of competition to sign him in free agency, including from the rival Philadelphia Phillies and several other teams that have some aspirations to be competitive next year, uh, the fact that this is his ultimate price with incentives that bring his deal up to $3.5 million, it makes it pretty clear that he um, that the Marlins would have been on the hook to pay him more than he was worth, and if they didn't feel confident of him being one of their five opening day starters, they didn't have confidence in how his act would translate to a relief role, that they were better off letting him go, and uh, this is a subject I'll get in to in other episodes, not for right now, but it's, I think it's very important that the Marlins reinvest the money that they saved by letting go of Arena, that they should reinvest that in other needs heading into 2021. Uh, but just focusing on his departure and his signing with the Tigers, um, good luck to him in the American League. Uh, of course, this past season, which was his first going consistently against lineups that had the designated hitter, he really struggled. Um, a guy that wasn't really missing bats the way that we thought he could, was missing fewer bats uh, than ever this past season, uh, nearly as many walks as strikeouts, and his most encouraging moment was right at the end of the year, that final game of the regular season, pitched a couple solid innings against the Yankees with the uh, postseason spot already locked up, and then just terrible luck, get line drive comebacker to the mound that struck him on his forearm and fractured his forearm, making him unavailable for the postseason. Still batting. There's a ball shot back up the middle off Urania. He goes down. Ball rolls back toward home plate. Urania's down. He's hurt. It's going to be a base hit for LeMayhew and Urania writhing in pain on the ground. So with him gone, he was one of the only players especially on the pitching staff that was on the major league roster when new ownership took over after the 2017 season and who was still around entering this offseason, coming off the exciting postseason appearance for the Marlins. There are nine other players on the 40-man roster right now, nine out of 40, so less than a quarter of the 40-man roster right now, are players who were inherited from the Loria era. And we're going to go through all of them right now one by one, loosely ranked in order of the ones that I feel are most secure with the Marlins moving forward. The actions that this ownership group have taken have been very clear that there is a bias in some respects towards players inherited from the Loria regime, no matter how they perform, uh, no, no matter what they do, there's still that stamp on them that they were here, that they weren't hand selected by the new Marlins front office. And for that single reason, uh, even if the team doesn't go out of its way to look for ways to replace them, that uh, when in doubt, whenever there's going to be a tough decision to be made between any of these guys and a comparable player that was brought in over the past few years, that in most cases, the advantage is going to go to the newly acquired player rather than the one that was inherited from the old days. We begin with 
third baseman Brian Anderson signed as an amateur draft pick out of the 2014 draft. So at this point, he is technically uh, the longest tenured player with the Marlins. And the fact that he signed immediately after the 2014 draft, he has, of course, now been in the majors for the last three-plus seasons coming up to the majors right before the ownership change at the end of the 2017 campaign. And you guys know how I feel about B.A., it's time to pay VA. Uh, most recently, I had that article reevaluating what it should cost to extend him, and I landed on about seven years, $68 million. You can read that article up on Fishstripes, fishstripes.com slash analysis has that whole line of thinking about a seven-year deal that adds four more years of new team control at most, uh, but also gives BA an opportunity to opt out of his contract uh, two years early. There were some uh, unusual comments from Kim Eng since taking over as GM about the possibility of extending Anderson with her uh, really being very upfront about her preference to actually see this 2021 season play out before seriously engaging in talks with an extension. I personally would like to see how this year goes um, before we, we venture down that road. Um you know, just so so I have a better understanding of you know who he is as a player and um, and uh, you know and I, and I just get a better sense of the situation. I worry this is really their best opportunity to get out ahead of his huge breakout because he's been a very good major league player back to back to back years. Very rare combination of being an above average hitter and being a plus defender. I'm not sure what more they have to see in order to make that kind of long-term commitment. But at the very least, you know that this franchise has very few alternatives at the third base position. It's virtually assured that he makes it through this offseason and through all of 2021 in a Marlins uniform, considering all these other inherited players that were dealt either during the very first rebuilding offseason, 2017-2018, and others that have been moved since then that it is somewhat of an accomplishment for B.A. to still be here in the first place. And given his performance each of the last few years and the scarcity of options and alternatives that the Marlins have to replace him, I think even if they don't extend him this year, even if they never extend him and he's just plays out his final three years under club control, that there is no imminent concern about him changing uniforms and leaving the Marlins. So number two among these Marlins sales survivors, Miguel Rojas, who's been the everyday shortstop with the Marlins, went healthy the last couple years, traded from the Dodgers to the Marlins in December of 2014. Really just a throw-in piece from that D. Gordon trade, and it's just incredible to think now that he's now the, the superior player to D. Gordon, especially over the last couple years. Uh, one more guaranteed year left on his contract extension, plus a club option for the 2022 season that uh, we'll see. At this moment, it seems very likely that he will play out that entire deal and that the Marlins would pick up his club option because he is coming off his best offensive season of his career. It was a very shortened season, only about 40 games because of the time that he missed when he tested positive for covid and there are some red flags there that I don't think there's in any universe where you can see him replicating this kind of production, being 40% better than a league average hitter, and being among the league leaders in batting average. 
that he was the very best version of himself, and that was so huge to the team, to the fan base. He is the model ambassador that you want for a player in Miami. Um, Everything about him, he checks every box you want for a player that was, as I said, a throw-in piece when the Marlins acquired him, an afterthought, and through sheer hard work and determination, he has turned himself into a very viable everyday infielder. Uh, We'll see how long that lasts, because the Marlins have now several intriguing middle infielders that are coming up through the farm system. Of course, we saw Jazz Chisholm at the major league level last year in a limited sample, and we have Isan Diaz, who who was out for most of this past season for injuries and because of opting out of the season, but he's a former minor league player of the year in the organization. Jose Devers, Osiris Johnson, Jose Salas. They have a lot of middle infielders to consider the next couple years. Rojas is such an ideal placeholder for them this coming year and I think very likely in 2022 as well. Uh, but the idea of him spending the rest of his career with the Marlins, is, I think, is still, um, that's far from being settled in any way. So he's great for the clubhouse, and just like with Brian Anderson, I think he has an obvious role to play with this team for the near term. We'll see exactly how long that lasts as he heads into his age 32 season. Uh, number three here, the first pitcher, right-hander Pablo Lopez. Uh, you might think that There might be this misperception that Pablo was actually acquired after the change, but it was really in July of 2017, right before the trade deadline, that they got him as one of four players from the Mariners in the David Phelps trade. And he has proved to be the only piece of that trade that has stuck around um, through this point under new ownership. And just like these other previous guys in Anderson and Rojas, he has an obvious role to play with them in the short term. During the 2020 shortened season, he was their most valuable pitcher by far, making every scheduled start, including, very importantly, that first start coming off of the COVID hiatus when the team had its outbreak. And from that point forward, he was great. He was unequivocally great. Very briefly on the periphery of that Cy Young race, he came back down to earth and was still a firmly above-average starting pitcher. I think a guy that, when he's healthy... He does have the potential to be a number two starter in a quality rotation. He's that good. I was high on him coming into the year, and he met all of my highest expectations. Integrating that new cutter into his repertoire, uh, attacking the zone very confidently, generating more ground balls than he ever had before. He does a lot of things that you'd love to see from a pitcher, and even younger than you might think, just 24 years old, turning 25 shortly before opening day next season. Four more years of club control. There are some concerns in his injury history. Underwent Tommy John surgery very early in his pro career, and during his past couple semi-full seasons in 2018 and 2019, both years, he had some setbacks with his shoulder, his right shoulder. So, Nothing structurally wrong with that. No surgery on his shoulder yet, but he's had some wear and tear on his arm uh, already, like I said, because he's relatively young so early in his career. He's uh, dealt with some concerns with those big problem areas that you worry about with a pitcher long term. 
We'll see exactly what the Marlins do with this. I think generally speaking, we've seen a trend across baseball where there's less loyalty to pitchers than position players because of the injury risk and because of the steps that the industry has taken to limit the workload for any one pitcher. No one pitcher is quite as indispensable as they used to be because they're not pitching as many total innings, even if they are fully healthy. But uh, of all the pitchers in the organization that were acquired from previous ownership, um, Pablo clearly stands out as someone that had a lot of success this past season, some mixed results over the course of his three major league seasons, but certainly a lock for the opening day rotation in 2021, and we'll see where it goes from there. The fourth player up among these Marlins sales survivors, right-hander Edward Cabrera, signed as an international free agent by the Marlins in July of 2015, always had that special fastball in the high 90s, The potential was there to cross into triple digits. Right after the ownership change, he started to realize that potential. With a nice season at full season ball in Greensboro, and then another huge leap forward in 2019 between Hyatt Jupiter and Jacksonville. Just harnessing his ability to command that great fastball and developing a plus slider to go along with it, and a very unique changeup that is that itself he can get that pitch well into the 90s with its velocity and miss bats with it. He was um, building a lot of momentum heading into 2020 as perhaps the most promising young pitcher in the organization. Didn't get a chance to debut in the majors in 2020. Had a minor injury setback. I don't think I don't think the team has specified exactly what that was with his arm. Some sort of soreness it appears because he was by all accounts being able to throw again by the end of the season, um, just not quite at the level that they wanted in order to actually have him contribute at the major league level. He traveled along with the team to the postseason as well. He was part of their traveling party heading into the postseason. And that shows you what they think of him and that they believe it was important for him to get the experience of being around a team in that situation in the hopes that he potentially will be there as an active player moving forward. So he's someone that Still has a couple minor league options left. He's going to turn 23 years old early this coming year. And I think they're going to be pretty patient with finding out exactly what they have with him. Surely we'll be debuting at some point during the 2021 season. I I do wonder if he could be involved in a larger trade somewhere down the road before he if he doesn't fully establish himself right away in the way that someone like Sixto Sanchez had, that um, because of all these pitchers that they have, nobody is really untouchable. And so they'll consider, I think, a lot of options with how to use him based on their own assessment of whether he's a true starter type moving forward or whether he profiles best as a reliever. That will have a lot to do with uh, exactly how much time and energy they want to invest in keeping him versus the possibilities of flipping him to address another need on the roster. So we'll wait and see with him. Next up, another highly regarded young pitcher, left-hander Braxton Garrett. He was their top draft pick in the 2016 amateur draft and signed shortly after that. At this point in the organization, you could argue that he is the number one lefty pitching prospect that they have. Certainly, Trevor Rogers, who is coming up in just a moment, he's, he'll give them a run for his money in that category. That we saw a little bit of Braxton debuting in the major leagues, making a couple of spot starts 
this past summer, and one of them uh, was pretty good. One of them was not so good. So some mixed results among that very small sample. No doubt he was rushed to the majors. He was some he's someone that's only a couple of years removed from Tommy John surgery, and he seemed to be in line for an assignment at the AA level in 2020 if there had been minor league baseball. Instead, he worked out at the alternate training site, and he got that opportunity in late September when the team had was playing more than a game every single day, a lot of doubleheaders to make up for postponements early in the season. And for that reason alone, he was pushed into action. A special curveball Braxton Garrett has, says he's had it for half of his life ever since he's started being a pitcher. That And that continued to translate to a lot of success when he used it in his major league outings. Uh, everything else is a little bit more questionable. His fastball velocity was kind of underwhelming from what we saw of him, averaging less than 90 miles an hour on the pitch. Uh, by all accounts, in 2019, when he was pitching at high A Jupiter, that there was a couple ticks more with that velo. Uh, for some reason, it didn't quite show up in the small sample. That's going to be something that I imagine the team wants to look at pretty closely heading into spring training, exactly where he is with that. Because if you don't throw at a certain velo, even as a left-handed pitcher, you have more margin for error. But uh, there's a certain point where it's just a really hittable pitch. And in order to especially to for a guy that still has some questions around the quality of his changeup and the consistency of his changeup. I mean, the best way to make a changeup play better is having that bigger differential with between that and your fastball velocity. So we'll we'll see exactly what kind of what kind of uh, what he's doing with that heater heading into this coming season. That's going to be a big make or break thing with him. Just like with Edward Cabrera, he has a couple options left at the minor league level, almost certain to start this coming season in the minors, uh, the Marlins can take a little bit more time to see exactly what they have with him. Because even though he's been in the organization now for more than four years, that he just hasn't had a whole lot of competitive endings because of that setback with Tommy John surgery. Now with Trevor Rogers, someone that we often see clumped together with Braxton Garrett. He is also a former first-round draft pick the year after Garrett in 2017. But he, uh, he was a little older for his draft class than Garrett was, so they're almost identically the same age and, for all intents and purposes, at the same level uh, of their career progression at this point. Uh, Rodgers had a big breakout year in 2019, uh, leading all their minor league pitchers in strikeouts. He debuted a little earlier than Braxton did in 2020. Uh, if you look at the stats alone and see the 6.11 ERA, might be a little concerned. Anybody that actually watched him pitch, though, is simply put, you if you watch him pitch, you know that he's better than that ERA would indicate. Uh, the host of Locked On Marlins, Aram Layden, I believe he's done a really eloquent job of breaking down the strengths and the concerns when it comes to Trevor Rogers. The, at this point in his career, mostly just a two-pitch pitcher, which is highly unusual for a starter, but that's a formula that more and more we can see being viable in Major League Baseball today because starters aren't working as deep into games. If, if you're only going through the order two times, really, uh, in most of your starts, then you can survive with having two-plus pitches. With Rodgers, uh, one concern you don't have is with his fastball velocity because that was actually a very pleasant surprise in the limited action we saw with him in the majors. Not only reaching the mid-90s on occasion, but 
sitting in the mid-90s with his fastball velo for a couple innings at a time. A very pleasant surprise. Very long and lanky guy who could presumably add even more strength to his frame and possibly even boost up his velo numbers if necessary. He's someone that has more of an inside track at actually making the 2021 opening day roster because of the workload that he had in 2019 that he showed he can handle. And because without him, there's a possibility that the Marlins won't have any lefties in their opening day rotation. So no no imminent reason to consider moving on from him at this point. He has a bunch of years of team control still to go. And there's some reasons to believe that he can be a lot more successful bottom line results than he showed in 2020. The arrow is definitely pointing up on Trevor Rogers. Uh, three more guys on the 40-man roster right now who are inherited from the Loria era. Outfielder Gerard Encarnacion signed as an international free agent in September of 2015, just a couple months after Edward. And he was, if I remember correctly, much lower. He was much more below the radar than Edward Cabrera was at the time. Smaller signing bonus, and frankly, until the 2019 season, he was barely on the map at all in terms of being a prospect worth paying attention to. He had that big breakout season in 2019, especially with Clinton at low A, uh, had some nice flashes also with Jupiter at high A, and then finished off the year very strong in the Arizona Fall League. Now he's just been placed on the Marlins 40-man roster uh, last month in order to protect him from the Rule 5 draft. And with him, the big question is going to be whether there's a designated hitter in the National League. Because he is, no exaggeration, he's almost Giancarlo Stanton-sized, but not quite as much of an all-around athlete as Stanton was. That He has a strong arm in right field, but not someone defensively overall that you necessarily want in that position, especially at a time where this organization has so many other corner outfielder types in the higher levels of the organization. Even if there's no DH this coming year, certainly from 2022 and beyond, when a new collective bargaining agreement will take effect, that he's someone that would be a very big beneficiary of the universal DH. But at the same time, if you do anticipate that rule change coming to baseball, that also makes him pretty appealing as a trade ship for the Marlins to have. Because even though he has really exceptional raw power and power to all fields, and he has a pretty decent hit tool to go around with that, there's definitely a scenario where Girard is a above average everyday player. There's, of course, the downside that he's not quite as disciplined as you want him to be, and that if the defense is not playable at all, then all of a sudden he's not really a full-time player. He's a s- small part of a platoon in at DH or corner outfielder. And uh, th- there's still some risk with this guy, but there's also some obvious appeal. And for a team that, as I said, they have so many other outfielders to consider in the organization, especially guys that have been acquired under new ownership, all the money they invested in Victor Victor Mesa and J.J. Bleday, Cameron Meisner, Peyton Burdick, Jesus Sanchez, is still some hope for Monte Harrison. All these guys that, remember, they are not in this category because they were acquired since the ownership change via the draft, via international free agency, via big blockbuster trades. There are a lot of other players in his same age range 
that are perhaps more well-rounded as overall players that would make uh, Gerard potentially more expendable. So I believe there's a, he's going to make it through this offseason as a Marlin. I feel pretty confident about that. There's been no indications that the Marlins would package him in any sort of big win-now trade for the moment. But I think as soon as next offseason, it starts to be very challenging questions, good problems to have for this organization when they have to narrow down the a certain number of outfield prospects that you can actually fit on the major league roster at the same time and the ones that they really believe in the most. So we'll, we'll see if he's still around here at this time next year. I think he'll certainly still have some value on the market at this time next year. But uh, a lot depends on exactly what he shows at the upper levels of the minor leagues, whether we get a chance to actually see him in the majors, and of course, what his competition does, what these other outfielders in the organization do once finally getting an opportunity to get everyday reps either at the high minor league levels or to round out the major league roster. Two more names to get to on the Marlins major league roster that fall into this category, right-hander Jordan Holloway who, along with B.A., he was part of that 2014 amateur draft class, someone that, just like Braxton Garrett, he underwent Tommy John surgery, what was it, in 2017, mid-2017, and the two of them were actually on a near-identical timeline with their rehab. And Holloway, coming off the Tommy John, he was eligible for the Rule 5 draft, and the Marlins put him on the 40-man roster, at that time because he showed just enough flashes of this stuff coming off of the surgery. He regained all of his velo, someone that was always pretty impressive in that department. And if nothing else, the surgery actually gave him a boost with that and uh, developing a, a wipeout curveball. N- not quite the same shape as Braxton Garrett's. His with Holloway is more of a conventional 12 to 6 curve that he's shown an ability to, on occasion, uh, command it the way he likes to and throw it over the plate. I think overall, even though he did get that opportunity to get his feet wet in the majors, that the year didn't go exactly the way he would have wanted to. I mean, aside from testing positive for COVID and missing out on opportunities to pitch out of the bullpen after that beginning of the season, he's someone that really needed more innings in the minor leagues to prove himself and to develop some sort of consistency. Because in 2019, with Jupiter, he just didn't have any consistency at all. Started the year on a tear, uh, was benefiting a little bit from some luck on balls and play. And as we got to the early part of that summer, uh, things really fell apart for him. There was a stretch where he was walking more batters than he was striking out. He He went through stretches where he was getting hit hard, despite having what would seem to be the profile of a great swing and miss pitcher. And there continue to be some concerns about whether or not he is an actual starting pitching prospect or someone that under most circumstances won't be successful without being limited to a short relief role where he can focus on just his top two pitches, the fastball and the curve. With him uh, still relatively young, just 24 years old, and has a couple minor league options to go because of those couple minor league options, I, I don't necessarily see him as a DFA candidate right now. Uh, we do know that the Marlins are looking to add more to their major league bullpen for this upcoming season, and they have a full 40-man roster at the time. 
So in order to eventually uh, sign some sort of veteran reliever, um, they're going to have to send somebody off the roster in that place, whether it's part of a corresponding trade or just to cut somebody loose. I don't necessarily see Holloway as being a, a prime candidate for that right now. Uh, again, let's see exactly what happens when he pitches at the higher minor league levels. The key question for them is whether they want to decide right now to make that transition into a relief role, whether he actually gets some reps in the minor leagues as a starter or whether they already see him as someone that should be limited to one pass through an opponent's lineup and whether they want to fast track him for a setup role, future setup role and just maximize what he already does well instead of holding onto this pipe string that he's going to be a well-rounded pitcher. But with him, he's had an interesting journey because of the setback with Tommy John, uh, how well he went through that process and came back from it, but now the inconsistency since then. He's still an intriguing prospect that I don't see them letting go of immediately, but for an organization that has a lot of options at this level and just considering the fact that the most important thing you need to do as a pitcher is know where the pitches are going. And so far, uh, he hasn't been able to do that with any sort of regularity that I really wouldn't be shocked if he is uh, considered shed off of the organization in the near future in order for them to focus on the guys that they they really see as being more well-rounded on the mound. And finally, um, among these 40-man roster players, right-hander Jeff Brigham, someone that is more easy to forget about and overlook because we only saw one inning of him at the major league level. Same as with Holloway, he was part of that group that caught COVID-19. And even more conspicuous, at least to me, maybe this went under the radar for some of you, but he wasn't added to the roster again at any point over the past couple months after that initial outbreak, even though the Marlins were very desperate to add impact relievers to their pen Last year during the season, you saw how desperately they were scrambling for reinforcements, and Brigham has more of a major league sample size than some of these other young pitchers we've mentioned. Uh, During the 2019 season, he had some nice stretches, missing a lot of bats, and aside from the bottom line results, the uh, underlying stat cast data for Brigham is really eye-popping. Same type of velocity that Holloway has sitting in the high 90s not just reaching the high 90s, but actually sitting there. That's been a key change for him since they transitioned him to a reliever because he had been developing as a starter in the high levels of the minors, constant injury setbacks with him, you know, oblique, arm injuries, you name it. Every single year, seemingly, he was on the injured list for a significant stretch of time. Of course, that streak continued in 2020, though not a traditional injury situation. It was the virus. Uh, he was someone that I saw the opportunity for him to break out if he was simply healthy for a significant period of time because that high fastball velocity and a slider that has elite spin rate, one that, aside from the great movement it has, it's it's a really legitimate weapon when he's locating it consistently or at least not even worrying much about that, but just getting ahead in the count with the fastball allows the slider to reach his full potential that there are some ingredients for him to be a poor man's version of Nick Anderson. I mean, this is really not just with Nick Anderson, but across the league, having that fastball slider combo and, and the characteristics of those pitches, 
you can see the outline of a legitimate high leverage reliever. The problem with Brigham is that he is he's older than almost everybody we've mentioned here, with the exception of Miguel Rojas. He's going to be 29 this upcoming season, and I mean overall he just hasn't had largely because of the health setbacks and because of all the time that they spent trying to, under the old regime, a lot of the time and energy they spent in trying to keep him as a starter, that he is uh, he's behind. You know, He's behind where you'd want him to be at this age. For as much potential as Brigham has, he just has not accomplished much by the same age where a lot of players are already firmly entrenched as being major league relievers. Someone like Archie Bradley, younger than Jeff Brigham, and already has a, a nice body of work at the major league level. Just throwing out one name, for example, but there are literally dozens of options on the major league market who have had some measure of success in high leverage roles, and they'd be a little more expensive than Brigham, who is still not yet arbitration eligible, but I mean, at some point, I mean, that trade-off is worth it if you're focused on doing something with this upcoming season and giving your team a chance. With Brigham, it's just a combination of being at the age he's at and the limited track record he has and the injury history, where even if you feel like he's at a point where he could put it all together, that it you don't necessarily trust him to be able to actually stay healthy over the course of an entire season and give you 60 innings of high-quality work out of the pen. So he's really on the top of my list, not just of, of holdover players, but all players on the 40-man roster that I think is on the chopping block, If uh, assuming that eventually there is some sort of veteran added to this bullpen mix, that I think he'd be the one that's easiest to swallow letting him go because they've given they've had a lot of time to try to figure out what they have in him, and unfortunately, we just haven't, he hasn't been able to prove much in the limited sample that we've seen. And there comes a point where that trade-off is worth it, and there's a serious void right now in this bullpen uh, of actually having veteran pitchers that also have swing-and-miss stuff. That was They were able to patchwork their way through their shortened season last year without getting much swing and miss at all out of their bullpen. But if it's a choice between relying on someone like Brigham versus bringing in a, a new but experienced player to fill that same kind of role that the Marlins, I believe, would be leaning towards shaking it up in that position. So he's the one that uh, I'm worried about among the survivors. We saw Jose Ureña let go a month ago and now officially signed by the Tigers and uh, ending his tenure with the team. And next to these survivors that I'm most worried about, Jeff Brigham. But in total, uh, we still have a handful of these guys that I'll be following extra closely um, moving forward. I mean, they try to keep track of everybody, but especially this storyline about the small number of players that this ownership group continues to have faith in, despite the fact that they're not quote-unquote, their own guys, the fact that they were holdovers from the old regime. It really fascinates me of these. It's a shrinking number. It's pretty rapidly shrinking, these exceptions to the norm. Aside from these 40-man players, uh, some other holdovers that are worth mentioning, prospects in the organization that could have a role with the team this upcoming season or in potentially in the subsequent years after that, Joe Dunand, Brian Miller, Josh Robertson, 
Thomas Jones, Luis Palacios, Alberto Guerrero, Riley Mahan, Dylan Lee, Matt Given, Sean Reynolds, Cody Poteet, Alberto Guaymaro, Colton Hawk, Archimedes Kumana. So that's 14 right there. I, I, I mean, if you follow prospects long enough, you know how this works. Uh, probably the majority of them won't quite break through to the major league level. Uh, but potentially one or two I could see actually contributing to the Marlins moving forward. Dunant has had a very interesting winter, just wrapped up his time playing in the Dominican Republic and was one of the best offensive players in the league after a couple minor league seasons where his bat fell far short of expectations. So I'm interested in seeing him in Major League Spring Training. Miller and Robertson, I think those are the other two that you could definitely count on being in Major League Spring Training. Dylan Lee as well, the lefty, pretty much a relief-only prospect at this stage of his career and a little bit older than these other ones. So that'll, that'll be curious to follow as well. Uh, but in I believe in all these cases, yeah, the Marlins, at least with these guys, they put them on the AAA roster to protect them from the minor league phase of the Rule 5 draft, which is just a, a clumsy way of saying that they weren't ready to give these guys away quite yet. Next update coming to this. This is, was part of the official show. Um, that, And we'll have another episode focusing on these uh, Marlins sales survivors next time one of them uh, is on the move, whether it's as a part of a larger trade or simply being squeezed out of the organization. So I'm not sure when that will be. Um, I imagine at some point between now and opening day, they'll make one of those tough decisions about uh, who to keep around and who not to. And I'll be curious to see who's the final one standing. I mean, you know where I stand for the moment, Brian Anderson being the safest and Miguel Rojas pretty close behind. But I'm curious as to what you guys think. So let me know who you think is going to be the last sales survivor that sticks around under this new regime. Potentially somebody that gets a deal to actually stick around for the bulk of their career. Because that would be uh, that'd be a move that, to this point, ownership hasn't been willing to take. Uh, but, I mean, ultimately, I think the, what speaks loudest is how these guys perform on the field. And the, so the 2021 season of a big influence on uh, which one of these guys proves to be keepers. This is likely going to be the last episode of the year 2020, but I'll certainly keep my eyes open in case there's any late-breaking moves or rumors that are worth discussing. I'm really excited for the possibilities with this pod in 2021. Thanks, as always, for listening. Enjoy your holidays, and have a happy new year. Go Fish. Go Fish.